baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Dr. Francis Fukuyama is the political scientist who became famous for a 1989 essay titled The End of History. It arrived right as the Cold War was winding down and raised the question, has democracy won now? You know, at this point, should we just expect democratic principles and free markets to take root all the way around the globe? Or are we done? Unfortunately, as we've seen, it hasn't quite turned out that way. In recent years, of course, democratic institutions in many countries have been losing ground, just as populist leaders, some with very illiberal views, have made gains. Well, if there has been a delay in the end of history, Dr. Fukuyama says one reason we should take a good long look at is the issue of identity. That potent force that he says lies behind diverse movements from Brexit to Black Lives Matter to the rise of authoritarianism in Russia. I'm Keith Manconi, and today on In-Depth, we're going to discuss Dr. Fukuyama's new book titled Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. These days, Dr. Fukuyama is the director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. So I met up with him on the Stanford campus, and to start things off, we talked about a term you just heard in the title there, the demand for dignity. And he told me how such demands are driving identity politics in the U.S. and around the world. I think that there's an important part of human psychology, which is this desire for respect. Uh, we all have within us a, a sense that we've got an inner self, uh, and that self uh, is worthy of respect from other human beings, and sometimes it doesn't, it's not forthcoming. And that leads, uh, I think, to the emotion of anger. Um, uh, we feel that uh, other people should be affirming us. And I think that's actually been behind a lot of the um, social movements that we've experienced here in the United States ever since the 1960s. Uh, obviously beginning with African Americans and the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, uh, the LGBTQ movement, all of these things were, you know, they had a material dimension. And so people suffered discrimination in jobs and employment. But I think that an equally important part of that was the fact that mainstream American society back in the early 1960s was basically white and male, heterosexual. Uh, it either disregarded these groups uh, and paid them no attention or uh, actively discriminated against them. And I think a lot of the uh, politics uh, of, of the country in the, in the period since then has been driven by this demand for respect. And I think now what you're seeing actually is a similar kind of identity politics now emerging on the right, where members of the former white majority community are uh, increasingly getting up and saying, well, what about us? Uh, you've forgotten about us as well. The elites have been paying attention to all of these minorities and to women. Um, 
Uh, and in the process, you know, we have been disrespected. And so when we start bringing in this notion of identity, the connection between those two things would be we're going from one person saying, please respect me, to I'm a part of this larger group and we all demand respect for this specific identity? That's right. I think that uh, we you know, may feel that we've got an individual identity that needs respecting, but more often we feel connected. And particularly if you're connected to a group that actually has been marginalized or uh, is perceived as being marginalized, I think that that uh, uh, need for community uh, builds this demand for, uh, for external respect. Uh, and I think that that's something that can't be satisfied just by material uh, you know, goods themselves. So, for example, uh, I think a lot of uh, uh, recent political events like the Brexit vote uh, in Britain uh, was driven by people who felt that immigration was taking away the national identity of their country, that they thought that they were sort of masters in their own house and all of a sudden the place was filling up with a lot of foreigners that didn't seem to respect uh, existing customs and the like, and they thought that was more important than the economic benefits of being part of the European Union. And I think that's really the struggle that's playing out in Britain right now. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, an interesting case to kind of illustrate some of the notions that you're talking about in your book, because you're not necessarily, when we're talking about disrespect, it's not necessarily that these Brexiteers were being spit on on the street. It's more the notion that they just felt like they were not visible or being given the same status as they had been before. I think that's true in this country as well. I mean, I think a lot of Trump voters, uh, you know, live in, you know, what's uh, sometimes derisively referred to as flyover country. Uh, and they feel that the elites that live in places like San Francisco or New York or Seattle uh, really don't pay much attention to them, that the institutions uh, like Hollywood or the arts really don't care about their struggles. Uh, and also, frankly, the two political parties up until recently really haven't paid much attention to them. Uh, as the country has de-industrialized, as there's been job loss, as there's been a steady you know, decline in the economic uh, condition of, of, of this old working class, I think they've also perceived this as a cultural loss as well. So how does this become then a threat to our democracy or a threat toward to liberal institutions around the world? Because we're not just talking about uh, this interesting phenomena of here are all, are all these identities that are forming and becoming more visible. You, you're actually making the assertion that this really does pose a challenge to the liberal order in, in some way. Absolutely. So I think that this lack, this feeling of being disrespected leads to uh, populism. Uh, it leads to people saying, you know, the entire system is stacked against us. The elites uh, are conspiring behind our backs. Uh, and we want a leader that's going to get us out of this. And this has led to the emergence of people like Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, the Law and Justice Party in, in, in Poland. Uh, uh, President Erdogan in Turkey is a leader in this style. And I think, frankly, Donald Trump is exactly in this mold. Uh, they're charismatic leaders, and they're saying, I understand you, the people. I understand your aspirations and your problems. I understand that the elites are all against you, and I'm going to do something about this. And the, the particular problem for democracy is that once you claim that kind of personal mantle, that you're the savior of the people, you don't respect institutions. You don't respect the courts. You don't respect the mainstream media. You don't respect your own bureaucracy. Uh, because these are standing in the way of your ability to fulfill the mandate that you've received from the people through an election or through your own popularity. 
And that, I think, is you know exactly the situation we're in in the United States right now. We have a president who, from the moment he came into office, began attacking the major institutions of American government because they were standing in the way of his you know, personal success. And why do you think that this has become an issue now? Because obviously the need for respect, the, the need for status, that's as old as time. So why is this a driving force now in particular? Well, here I do think that economics probably trigger this. I think we've been living for the past 40, 50 years in a liberal world order that's been largely shaped by the United States, where people are allowed to travel, where uh, goods and services flow across national borders. Uh, and it's made some people extremely rich, but it's also left behind a lot of people. So even though the demand for respect is not an economic motive, I think it it's triggered uh, uh, by economics because if you lose your job, it's it's more than just losing your income. It's also losing a feeling about yourself that society no longer values what I do. Uh, and that, I think, can be as devastating as the loss of material resources. And I think that, uh, again, is what's built this, built, um, created this, this politics of resentment. Now, identity politics is certainly a force in American politics, but I think a lot of people that look at something, for example, Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. they would say that there's a lot more going on there than mm -hmm. simple identity. There are pe real people uh, organizing around real grievances and trying to ad address, for example, police brutality or other forms of uh, excess from authorities. And they would say, you know, you don't need identity necessarily to explain that. What's going on here is really trying to sort out how best to, to handle some of these real issues. Oh, that's absolutely right. I think that um, the social movements uh, that have fueled identity politics really did begin uh, from real grievances, and they, they need to be settled. You know, police violence is a problem in this country, and it, it needs to be addressed. Sexual harassment is a problem in this country, and it needs to be uh, addressed. I think, however, that as these movements grew, because they are based in the shared lived experiences of particular groups, uh, they tended to take on a life of their own where the group uh, began to have an identity of, of its own uh, that was distinct from the identities of other people. And uh, your membership, you know, it, it's a funny thing because racists and sexists treat you in a stereotype way because you're a member of a particular group. Uh, the first reaction is to say, no, I'm an individual. I, I shouldn't be stereotyped. But then as time goes on, you know, people in a certain sense begin to accept the stereotypes and say, yes, I'm a member of this uh, minority and, and we're being screwed and we really need uh, restitution as a group. And I think that, you know, the group solidarity and pushing back then leads to a, you know, a, a kind of loss of identity where it's your it's it's the way you're born that determines how you should think and act and feel and what your politics are and how you respond to culture and, and this sort of thing. And that's the part where I think you you begin to go off the rails a little bit. So how do you kind of sort between those two things? Because on the one hand, I, I, I take your point that you, you can get really caught up in whatever identity you've been handed and that can really be distracting from a lot of issues. But on the other hand, if you don't have that role of identity for these mm -hmm. communities to organize around and you don't have a way for groups of people to relate to one another and say, you know, we have this in common, we can make common cause together, 
it's hard to imagine how you would see people really get energized and focused on a specific issue and empowered to make some change. Oh, sure. So they, you know, that's the necessary part of politics. I think that the problem in this country, however, is, you know, just a lot of fragmentation and this extreme degree of polarization that exists, you know, in the country more generally. Uh, and I think that in addition to these specific identities, which, you know, are legitimate and, you know, nobody's being asked to give them up, but they need to be balanced by uh, broader identities that integrate people because basically you can't have a democracy unless people feel that they belong to a community of a certain set of shared values. They believe in the legitimacy of their political institutions and the democratic process itself. Uh, and, uh, you know, members of a, of a nation that is uh, open, liberal, you know, access, uh, accessible to, to people very, of very diverse backgrounds, but nonetheless one in which people do share a common belief in democracy. Uh, and so I think that the individual identities also need to be supplemented by something like a, an open civic national identity. I want to dig into that uh, more in a little bit because your book does uh, talk extensively about what you think should be done and what could be done to make an identity that brings us together more than the identities that we have been seeing. Uh, but before we get there, I want to touch on one other piece of criticism uh, that I've seen uh, leveled against your book uh, from a number of uh, writers, specifically this notion that in talking about identity politics and the need for regard, you're making you're putting a lot of different activities and a lot of different programs on one continuum. You know, we, we talk in one breath about life, uh, Black Lives Matter and their struggle for respect of their community. And then you also talk about, you know, Vladimir Putin and mm -hmm. some of how his actions uh, are also, in a way, a struggle for uh, respect for Russia. Mm -hmm. And putting both of those things in the same category for some people would feel like a false equivalency. Uh, I want to quote directly from a reaction to your book that was in The New Yorker from uh, Louis Menand. Uh, he said, wouldn't it be important to distinguish people who ultimately don't want differences to matter, like the people involved in Me Too and Black Lives Matter, from people who ultimately do want them to matter, like ISIS militants, Brexit voters, or separatist nationalists? What are your thoughts on that? Well, so first of all, let me make something com completely clear. I don't see any moral equivalence between all of these groups. I'm not saying that Vladimir Putin's uh, nationalism is uh, is equally worthy as Black Lives Matter. That's obviously not the case. Uh, what I'm saying is psychologically, uh, I think there are some similarities uh, because everybody actually does have this sense of you know, inner worth and dignity. And uh, I, I think they experience um, a disregard in, 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 in very similar ways. And by the way, uh, if you think about Russian, you know, the Russian sense of self-regard, although it's been expressed in a very... Uh, aggressive uh, uh, and, and violent way in the last few years, uh, you know, there is something to what he's saying about the disrespect that Russia experienced after the Soviet Union collapsed, that it used to be a great power and it all of a sudden became kind of a doormat for the IMF and for other Western institutions. And so, um, but again, that's not to say that that is as worthy a cause as uh, a lot of the social justice issues that, that animate American politics. So is, is there a rule of thumb that we can use to look at an identity group that's forming and, and see whether or not it's kind of marching in a, a direction that is positive or negative? Or is it, I mean, how, how do you think about that? Oh, sure. So I think that 
identity begins to go off the rails when uh, you believe that your membership in a group is determinative of you know, many things that you think about politics, about culture, and the like, uh, rather than you're being an individual that has an ability to uh, judge. So if you say, you know, as a white person, you know, I feel such and such, uh, I I don't think that that's particularly legitimate because I think there's a huge diversity in, you know, white people. Uh, and I don't think that simply the color of your skin, you know, ought to... I mean, obviously, it will affect your perceptions and your views on a, on a lot of issues, but it should not be completely determinative because I think people need to be able to rise above the particular uh, birth circumstances, uh, you know, under which they grew up. They need to be able to have empathy with people that are not like themselves and, you know, widen their circle of, uh, you know, human connection. Yeah, and that touches on uh, another question that you raise in the book, that being, uh, to what extent does lived experience really matter? Is is the lived experience of a white man really that different from the lived experience of a black woman? And there there are certainly a lot of uh, speakers and commentators and thinkers out there today that uh, feel that depending on what group you're from, you know, the it, your specific experiences and and your the way that you you know move about in the world is just incomprehensible to anybody who has not had your life experience. Uh, and it seems to say uh, it seems like you're saying that you 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 don't. Uh, quite agree with that. Well, I just don't see how you can have a political community if you believe that. If everybody's experiences, subjective experiences, are completely incommensurate, and we can't empathize with anybody that didn't grow up in our identical circumstances, how are you going to talk to anybody? Uh, uh, you know, how are you going to have any kind of common, you know, values or uh, reactions to things uh, under those circumstances? I think that you know the fact of the matter is that. Uh, there are certain, you know, universal human experiences. We believe in human rights on a universal basis because we actually do believe that uh, human beings do have characteristics in common. Uh, and I think we need to build on that. So like I'm saying, of course there are lived experiences that are unique. Nobody's saying that's not the case. Nobody's saying that they're not specific injustices. I think that you can fight those at the same time that you also worry about your connections with other people and how to broaden that circle of experience. So your book also, now we're going to get to the what to do about all this part of your book. In your book, you discuss, well, it seems that there is a form of identity that you find indispensable, a form of identity that you think is absolutely necessary to have a functioning uh, liberal democratic system, and that kind of identity is something that is more inclusive and everybody in a country can subscribe to and understand themselves to be a part of. So talk a little bit about that and why it's indispensable. Well, I think what you need is what's sometimes called a, a civic or a creedal national identity. Uh, so this is not the same thing as the old kind of ethno-nationalism that propelled the Europe Europe into the two world wars where you say my ethnic group is superior to your ethnic group. Uh, what a creedal identity uh, uh, means is it's an identity that's not connected to ethnicity or race or some specific birth characteristic, but based on ideas. In this country, what that means is you believe in the Constitution, in the rule of law, in the basic principle of human equality that have animated uh, kind of the American founding, you know, up to the present, even if it was not uh, ever fully uh, realized. And I think that is the kind of identity that will allow a diverse society like ours to, 
you know, uh, actually have something in common with one another. And how do you get there? I mean, I, it's, it's, it's striking if you look at the way that people talked about their country back in the 1960s or, you know, before the tumult of Watergate and a lot of uh, mistrust was uh, kind of engendered through the, the 1970s and the post-Vietnam era. It, it felt like people were a little bit closer to that identity back then. Do you think that we, we need to maybe find a way to get back to that mentality in some way? I think that it should be perfectly possible, for example, to teach American history to children uh, or, or young adults uh, in a way that fully acknowledges slavery, racism, sexism, you know, all of the forms that historically existed in the United States, but also to tell a kind of progressive story about, you know, how the country managed to uh, confront and eventually, uh, you know, it took too long, but, you know, eventually deal with some of these uh, sorts of problems. Uh, and so the idea is not to go back to the uh, the, the kind of plain vanilla, you know, uh, uh, happy stories that people told back in the 1950s, but, you know, to acknowledge those those painful events, but also say that there is a basis for hope and optimism, you know, that uh, the founding principles uh, of, the, um, uh, of the nation will actually, over time, have been uh, increasingly fulfilled, and that's something that we still have to do. You know, this is something Abraham Lincoln believed. He was living in an age of slavery, of chattel slavery, and yet he believed in the Declaration of Independence assertion of the equality of all human beings, and he said, you know, we need to fulfill that promise in the United States government by of and for the people, and, you know, that's what led into this in enormous conflict, but in the end, you know, I do think it made the country better. And what does that look like in terms of how politics might change if we did get more people to sign up for this more universalistic uh, identity. Do we see some of these interest groups go away, or do their tactics change? What, what does America look like? Well, I would be perfectly content if we could actually just reduce the ex existing level of polarization in this country, where uh, people not, not only have different ideas about taxes and immigration and so forth, but they actively hate one another. You know, they think they're basically traitors to the country. I think that we need to walk back from some of that kind of rhetoric uh, and accept the fact that we are basically all Americans and, you know, we do have a certain important shared values. Uh, I think that, you know, there are a number of ways that you can get to this. I think part of it uh, is a matter of actually teaching, you know, people a little bit about civics. Uh, it's shocking if you look at surveys of how little high school graduates in this country actually know about the Constitution or about some of the basic principles of how their government uh, works or is, is, is supposed to operate. Uh, so that's one thing I think that can be done. I actually am very much in favor of some form of national service because I think that uh, everybody should have the idea that they're not simply entitled to things. The government doesn't just give them stuff. Uh, they also have obligations as a citizen. Uh, obviously, they have to pay their taxes and, 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 and uh, uh, they should be voting. But I think that, you know, if you actually had people working together uh, with other races, ethnicities, people from different social classes, from different parts of the country, uh, this would be, you know, something that might actually rebind uh, Americans to one another because, you know, the truth of the matter is we are extremely diverse. Now, this makes me think 
of a question that I, I, I have a lot of times when I, I jump back and forth between looking at uh, liberal commentators versus uh, conservative commentators, and, th- and that is, to what extent is this animosity between groups that perceive themselves to be different, and to what extent is this really real differences in opinions about what is a good life and how to get there for the country and, you know, what policies are appropriate? You know, for example, it's it's not so, like, when we're talking about something like gay marriage, mm-hmm. there is an identity component to that, but yes. there's also a real policy question there, and there are people on both sides of that policy that feels very strongly about it. And even if they perhaps loosened up on uh, their own identity issue, they may still really uh, dislike people that are on the other end of that spectrum just for the fact of that dispute itself. Well, that's uh, in, I mean, gay marriage is actually a a perfect example of dignity politics because I actually think the material side of it is pretty easy to settle. I mean, if you're worried about survivorship or inheritance rules, this sort of thing, you can accomplish that, you know, actually with a civil union. You don't have to have gay marriage. Gay marriage is really about dignity. It's it's about saying that, a, you know, a, a, a gay union or lesbian union is equally worthy as a heterosexual one. That's the real issue. And, you know, in a sense, that's what's wrong. That's the problem with identity politics is that's not something you can just split the difference on. You know, if, if you truly believe that homosexuality is sinful, uh, then you're never going to really accord, you know, a, a gay union the same dignity. And conversely, if you, you know, uh, if you're on the other side, you're not going to compromise, uh, really. So, you know, so it, I think that is kind of a deep and abiding uh, conflict in values. And I'm not sure that we can uh, paper over it that uh, that easily. I do think, however, that you know, there's a lot of other issues out there (laughs) uh, that need to be addressed where people, you know, uh, and that's why I think in general, if we thought less in identity terms and more in old-fashioned economic class terms, we'd probably be doing better, that we want to take care of disadvantaged people, uh, not sorting them by, you know, their, their, their race, ethnicity, uh, gender, gender, uh, you know, sexual orientation status, uh, but rather by their social class, uh, you know, we might actually be able to do some positive good in a real way for disadvantaged people uh, without getting into some of these device, more divisive issues. So why would something like social class be a better organizing principle than some of these other identities that you've discussed? Because I think actually that's the real problem in this country. The real problem is economic inequality lack of access to opportunities. Now, that's not distributed equally among racial groups or ethnic groups, so I understand that perfectly well. But if you say the problem is, you know, helping a particular racial group as a racial group, uh, you're not actually addressing what the real problem is, which is, you know, that economic uh, lack of opportunity. And so that's why I think it's, it's better to focus on that. That's why I actually really like Obamacare. You know, I like the Affordable Care Act because it was the, you know, really since the Great Society in the 1960s, it was the, it was our last attempt to do some really important social policy, and it defined the problem again. You know, not in racial terms. It defined the problem in you know economic class terms, and uh, you know, a lot of different people, diverse groups of people, were beneficiaries of it. Taking a little bit of a different tack, a lot of what you're writing about is national identities and how national politics play out. But since KCBS is a local radio station, I wonder if you also see any benefit 
to, to developing local uh, identities that are also kind of geared towards civic engagement. You know, if, if I had a strong Bay Area identity, for example, if I identified as a Bay Area person, and for me that meant, you know, that I go out and I volunteer, I, I clean up the streets, uh, would you see that as a, as a positive thing? Have you given any thought to that at all? Oh, sure. So, look, the identities are very flexible. They exist at lots of different levels. And, in fact, some of the strongest ones are precisely those kinds of local identities. And, in fact, uh, you know, the, the, the more local it is, in a way, the more powerful it is because you're actually identifying with people that you can see and feel and touch and you interact with. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's uh, a good idea. So, again, the issue is not you know, narrow identities per se. Uh, those are important. They're the basis of collective action. But you need collective action on a lot of different levels. You need it in your family. You need it in the neighborhood. You need it in the city. You need it in the, you know, kind of wider region. But you also need it at a national level. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, you have to balance the, you know, the smaller, narrower ones with ones that are more integrative. And you, you brought up the notion of flyover states earlier in the interview, and, cert- and folks in the San Francisco Bay Area are certainly guilty of using that term as much as anywhere else in the country. So what do you think it, what, what, what kind of responsibility do you think uh, folks on the coastal uh, parts of the country bear in kind of maybe getting past that prejudice? <laughs> well, I just think that you have to listen to people. Uh, I think, for example, that not everybody that voted for Donald Trump is a racist and a bigot and a xenophobe. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, who had lots of questions about his views on a lot of issues, but felt that this was a way of getting people finally to listen uh, to them. Uh, and I think that's actually true of, you know, people that vote for other populist uh, politicians in other, you know, other parts of the world. So that listening, I think, is uh, uh, is important. Uh, and it actually will have some real policy consequences when you get to dealing with, you know, questions like immigration and uh, and so forth. I think that, you know, in a sense, people that live in the Bay Area have to understand that they are living in a kind of bubble. Uh, and, you know, if you really want to engage with people that, you know, are truly diverse and different from you, you know, you need to get out of, you know, out of that bubble and, and be in other parts of the country. And, and like I said, you got to listen to people. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying that this is easy or something that can be done on a, on a really broad basis. But I do think that part of the problem we have in this country is that we've now residentially segregated ourselves uh, into red and blue. And it's just hard to break out of that, that kind of segregation. Is I feel like it's going to take a lot to kind of unwind this clock because every time I, I hear you, you know, you bringing up these arguments of you know it's important to get to know other people or it's important to be inclusive. The first thing that pops into my head is uh, I've read read a number of comments on articles about your book. Is somebody on there will pop up and say, "Well, they started it." You know, mm-hmm. whatever side you're coming from, you're going to say, "Well, they were the ones that started the polarization," or they were the the other side, whether they be liberal or Democrats, they're the ones that have radicalized. Uh, how, given that context of everybody feels wronged, everyone feels victimized, how do you start that process of creating a more uh, unified identity? Well, so there's a couple of different answers to that. One way historically it's happened is something external happens, like you have a huge financial crisis or there's a war, or there's a, 
an, an attack or something uh, that suddenly makes everybody realize, hey, actually, we are in this together. I mean, this happened briefly after September 11th, uh, when you know New York City, everybody had a flag all of a sudden on their car. Um, unfortunately, it didn't last very long, uh, but you know, it 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 could um, something like that could happen. But I also think that we underestimate the importance of leadership because. Uh, especially since 2016, you know, we've had very skillful leaders that are really good at actually making us more divided uh, and preying on uh, uh, these uh, resentments and stoking them. Uh, But you don't have to do that. Uh, I think that you can, you know, uh, you can make overtures and talk about a new kind of more inclusive politics that will actually listen to other people. And so, and I, uh, I think that, you know, people are also kind of sick of the polarization. And at a certain point, uh, they will actually support somebody that actually is um, uh, in the center like this. So, of course, you're most famous for uh, a work that raised the question, are we at the end of history, by uh, which uh, it was meant, uh, have we reached a point where liberal democracies are going to be the dominant form of governance that we see throughout the world? Uh, obviously, that has not become the case to the extent that we would like to see uh, do you think that this kind of identity polarization is a part of the story that is making it hard to get there? Uh, I actually, in, if you go back to my 1992 book, The End of History and the Last Man, the last man part of it was actually all about identity uh, because I was talking about what could threaten this liberal order that was emerging. Uh, and I said, you know, identity is really part of it because in the end, people are not satisfied with the kind of universal identity as a citizen you know, rights bearer in a liberal democracy. You want something more than that. Uh, and that is, you know, I think what's actually played out over the last few years. Like in Eastern Europe, you know, Poland used to be a communist dictatorship. It's one of the most successful countries in the European Union, and yet the Poles are voting for a, you know, a populist uh, uh, party. How do you explain that? And I think the answer is Poles now take gra- uh, democracy for granted, you know, that, that's something that they grew up with. They can't imagine a different world, and so now they want something different. And I think, in a way, that's part of the problem with democracy itself, is that uh, if you don't have it, you really want it. But if you take it for granted, you you know, you know move on to other things. So given all that, uh, how hopeful are you that we can get past this high-identity, high-polarization moment in American politics? Uh, I actually think that we will get beyond it uh, just for a kind of sociological reason, that if you look at who votes for liberal candidates versus uh, these populist uh, candidates, it's based on a big sociological divide. You know, essentially, if you're living in a densely populated city, uh, you're connected to the global economy, you have a good education where you can take advantage of, you know, that that globalization, uh, you're going to be in favor of more open world. Uh, and the people that are on the other side live in more rural areas, less education. They tend to be older in most countries. Uh, that balance is shifting. Uh, the future does not lie with you know people living in 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 um, in rural areas that are unconnected to these broader currents. Uh, so for that reason, I think over time, you know, the the demographic balance is going to shift. Uh, and the other thing is, just looking at our politics, I think there is a backlash against the backlash now. Uh, the November 6th election was actually a blue wave. I mean, it didn't become evident to people because it took so long to count so many of the votes. But uh, but actually, 40 seats, you know, the Democrats gaining 40 seats in the House was a tremendous uh, vote against uh, populism. 
Uh, so I do think that there's hope. I, but you have to remember it's a political struggle fundamentally. And if you don't stand up for your political values and if you don't mobilize within the system to actually regain power, uh, you're not going to get it and, and the world isn't going to get any better. All right. So on that note, we are going to wait with uh, bated breath for the world to get a little bit better. Well, we, we only have to wait two years, you know, because that's the next important decision point. And I think, you know, uh, you need to build on the momentum that was created uh, in 2018. All right. Uh, and we are waiting and waiting. <laughs> we have been speaking today to Dr. Francis Fukuyama. His new book is Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. Dr. Fukuyama, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to In-Depth. Tune in again next weekend as we bring you another deep look at some of the big trends behind the news we cover each day here on KCBS. I'm Keith Menconi, and I'll see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 